You have reached the voicemail box of Speed Dial with Ira Madison III and Doreen St. Felix. This week in our Keep It segment, we talk about struggle plates at Thanksgiving, British television, and the media's coverage of Kanye's breakdown. Next, we'll discuss the weekend's new album called Starboy, and we'll have a conversation about the alt-right. Finally, we'll close this episode with two voicemails. Leave a message. Doreen, I hope you had a good Thanksgiving, because let me tell you about this macaroni and cheese I was forced to eat. Call me back. Tell me about this mac and cheese that you had. I thought you made your own mac and cheese. It, whatever you made looked good on Instagram. So, listen, <laughs> and I hope whoever made this mac and cheese is not listening to this podcast. But let me tell you something. I was muscled out of bringing my mac and cheese <laughs> to the function. <laughs> Why is that? Was it going to be too Negro for them? I'm assuming this, you were talking about white people's mac and cheese, right? (laughs) Yes. One of the hosts was making mac and cheese and they were like, oh, you know, they make it every year, you know, and it's so big. It's enough for everybody. You know, we don't need two mac and cheeses. And I was like, you know what? If they make it every year, you know, it's probably bomb. So... First mistake. <laughs> My second mistake was eating it when I saw that there were breadcrumbs oh, on it. No. That's let me tell y'all a little something. I know, right? Sacrilegious. <laughs> let me tell y'all something about mac and cheese. Proper mac <laughs> and cheese etiquette. First of all, you do not use breadcrumbs to mask flavorless mac and cheese. (laughs) You just don't do it because the mac and cheese should already have flavor. You're putting cheese in it. If you manage to make mac and cheese flavorless, you really have no place in the kitchen. And the breadcrumbs will not help. It doesn't make logistical sense that white people are bad at making mac and cheese because they love cheese. It's like their sacred food. In a lot of white cultures, they praise cheese. They eat it very often. So it doesn't compute, but for some reason, they always mess it up. In my opinion, I think that, like, I'm really only trying to have mac and cheese from black people in the South and West Indians. I love the way West Indians make mac and cheese because it's like a macaroni pie. Mm, yeah. Okay. Really that, that yeah. would be dope. Yeah, it's good. It's a variation, but I think you would be pleased. <laughs> it's just like you need to, one, put enough cheese in it. Two, if you need to add some flavor, like, I shouldn't have to put pepper on my mac and cheese before I eat it. You know, there should already be some spice in your dish. That's the worst. Um, And mac mac and cheese should be sweet as well, you know? Mm -hmm. Use some ricotta cheese. Use some condensed milk. Use something. (laughs) Shit. (laughs) I am really just dragging this Thanksgiving. The thing is, I had a lovely time. You know, everyone Mm -hmm. was great. But I just like, I grew up in, you know, the kitchen with Geneva Sherrod, my great grandmother. (laughs) That's an amazing name. Bobby Sherrod. 
and they, you know, they they would not allow this. If somebody served these dishes, <laughs> if somebody tried to bring a green bean casserole to Thanksgiving, okay. it would get thrown in the trash. All green bean casseroles, like, aren't we're not even supposed to be eating that anymore. That's famine food. That's like World War II. McCarthy era food when they made when everybody was poor and shit. This is not stuff that you're supposed to be eating in 2016. If you have to put Campbell's well, actually, soup in a meal, it's not good. <laughs> actually, you know what? Maybe since Trump is our next president, green bean casserole will be making a comeback when we're all living in concentration camps. <laughs> oh my god, Ira. On that note. We're going to make a judgment on struggle plates at Thanksgiving. Should they keep them? Keep it. Keep it. Next, we talk about two amazing shows. Well, I I already put my judgment in there. (laughs) 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 So you are not going to be saying keep it on these British TV shows that we are talking about. Fleabag is one of them. It's airing on Amazon Prime. And it is a British show about a sex addict. And it's a comedy. And it's fucking hysterical. And the other one is Chewing Gum, which is on Netflix, Mm -hmm. which is about a virgin who works in, like, a convenience store. And it is also hilarious. So they bear a lot of similarities, not just because they're both – British comedies, but also because their creators also star in the shows. So Phoebe Waller-Bridge, she created Fleabag, and Fleabag actually used to be a one-woman play. And when you watch the show, there's a lot of breaking of the fourth wall, and it's super theatrical, and so that really comes across. And that's the same with Chewing Gum, actually. So Michaela Cole, who won a BAFTA for her work on Chewing Gum, also, you know, is a playwright. And it's so cool to me. I kind of feel like I might have to move to England anyway. So to know that there's good television made by brilliant, hilarious, dark women waiting for me, it's it's a boon, you know? Like, I'm going to go back to the crown. I know that we fought for independence like 200-whatever years ago, but I'm trying to be a subject again. And speaking of, I know that you are not watching it, but the crown is kind of Yeah, I don't watch period dramas. It's not. It's not my taste. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Wow. Um, But listen, no, I started The Crown because literally every non-white person whose opinion I respect, who's like an intellectual, kept telling me that I need to watch The Crown. Okay? Terrell McCraney of Moonlight told me that I need to watch The Crown. So I listened to him and I watched The Crown and The Crown is amazing. That might change my opinion on things. See. And Natasha Nianen, um, former guest of the podcast, she also recommended that I watch it. Oh my God, I love her. Okay, well this is just like a British love fest then. (laughs) (laughs) I you know, I just like really love the way that like all three just sort of deal with sexuality in like mm-hmm. a fun British way that's so different than like how our shows tend to do it. 
and it's weird because our shows tend to have like HBO shows have like a lot of nudity mm-hmm. and like you know sex and stuff like that but just in the way it's presented on these shows is very different you know and yeah. I like I actually really like how chewing gum presents this idea of this virgin who like literally has no idea what she's doing and it's such a stark contrast to like Jane the Virgin or something mm-hmm. you know we're like She's still, she's American, so she's still, like, you know when she finally has sex with Michael and she has this season, um, she at least knows what sex is. Exactly. But Tracy <laughs> on Chewing Gum literally has no idea what it is. And the first time that she thinks she's having sex with her boyfriend, Connor, I was cracking the fuck up. I mean, these shows are just irreverent, you know, and I think to your point about the way American shows deal with sex and and nudity, it's all glorified, right? Like everybody's wearing so much makeup, their bodies are totally toned, and like you said, they know exactly what to do. But these shows show the awkward parts of sex, and it's just so believable, like to the point where I I had to pause Fleabag at one point because it was just like— I have been there, like, late at night. I mean, I'm a virgin, mom, if you're listening. But, theoretically, <laughs> I know what she's talking about. <laughs> um, My favorite part of the Fleabag pilot, and maybe since anything I've seen, really, was her masturbating to <laughs> Barack Obama's speech. <laughs> And her boyfriend being like, what was the speech about? (laughs) She was like, I was just watching the news. And she couldn't even say what the speech was about. And it was about, like, drone attacks. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm cracking up thinking about it now. Me too. Um, (laughs) We are definitely not saying keep it. On these three shows, I know Doreen has not seen The Crown, but, but I, I will need her now. to because The Crown and Chewing Gum on Netflix are excellent, and Fleabag on Amazon is also excellent. So last, but certainly not least, we're going to talk about Kanye West. We have, we have to. to. So you guys know the story, right? <laughs> Basically, a couple of weeks ago, Kanye was having a very tumultuous, publicly tumultuous week. Um, at his concerts on the Pablo tour, he was making these really erratic speeches. He was calling out Beyonce. He was saying that he didn't vote, but if he had, he would have voted for Trump. Um, at one point, he even uh, chanted, build that wall, like keep them out. It was just very strange, even by Kanye's standards. And then a couple of days later, a call was put in. And Kanye was actually brought to the hospital on a 5150 hold, which is basically when you are held under, like, psychiatric observation against your will. And he's still in the hospital, according to TMZ. So my first reaction when this stuff started happening before the hospitalization Mm -hmm. was that Kanye was just being Kanye. Because he is—he's always done— crazy shit you know like it wasn't that wild to me that he was talking about oh i would have voted for trump when earlier this year 
he tweeted out Bill Cosby innocent Mm -hmm. in all caps with like 20 exclamation points. You know, I have always been like, this nigga is doing too much. And I was really just glad that he gave me a good concert because I saw the Pablo (laughs) tour twice in LA. Um, And one of the times I saw it was supposed to be on its last night because he had only had five shows. Mm -hmm. Um, And the last night I went, I saw it from the pit and it's honestly the best concert that Kanye has ever given. You lucked out though. I've seen every one of his tours all the way back to when he opened for Usher like on the Confessions (laughs) tour. That is how long I've been writing for Kanye and his tours are always amazing. I think putting Kanye, I'm not going to speculate on anybody's mental health. I don't think that that's really productive and I think it's weird when people do that when journalists do that, because at the end of the day, you're not somebody's doctor. But I will say that it was clear that after what happened with Kim, the robbery, that Kanye was going to be affected. You know, Kanye, everybody always invokes um, the the death of his mother to kind of understand how permeable he is to trauma. Like, he's still grieving his mother in a very visceral way. So I can only imagine how he felt when he realized that the life of his wife and the mother of his children was in danger. I'm just going to say that that is something that happened before this breakdown. But at the end of the day, I think the media's job is to not be speculative and to just report the facts. I think anything that veers onto blaming Kanye for his meltdowns or anything that feels like unsubstantiated by what we know, which is very little to me is like irresponsible. These both Kim and Kanye now are kind of out of the spotlight for different reasons, but obviously they're related. And I think that just, if you don't have anything to report, like literally journalism on them, like there's no reason for you to be writing on them at all. I really hate the, um, Twitter therapists mm-hmm. who come out of the woodwork whatever something happens to a celebrity you know like um, I'm going through depression Twitter that's always like these are classic symptoms blah 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 and I was on these medications before and I had these symptoms and you know we just need to understand Kanye and mental health in the black community I'm like we can understand mental health in the black community without you projecting all this nonsense onto yeah. a celebrity you do not know. Yeah. Yeah, I think I understand the the need to feel connected to celebrities, but it's just wrong, you know? Like, I saw this hashtag pop up, and what was good about it was that a lot of black men were talking about their mental health and their own issues, but... You have to know that there's a line, right? Like mental health is a very like particular thing, very particular to each person. And just all of the projection, they need to keep it, right? Yeah, it's always some freelancer looking for a story, (laughs) looking for a paycheck. (laughs) Keep it. So this week, The Weeknd released a brand new album called Starboy, and Doreen, you wrote a very lush review of it for MTV News. (laughs) 
Can you tell me how it was lush? <laughs> Listen, girl, like this interview starts out with <laughs> in 2015, the weekend told you to tell your friends about him. And then you got all this imagery of chandeliers strewn across the floor <laughs> and bodies, you know, forming a Greek chorus or whatever. <laughs> I was like, Dorita's just giving you everything. <laughs> In this review. Oh my God. But listen, thank you, first of all. But all of those things are in the weekend's music. Like his music is so excessive that even when you're just writing <laughs> what's plainly there, it sounds like you're being extra in your imagery. But you know, he's very Baroque in that way. If you'll allow me that. <laughs> Will you allow me that? You better come through with Baroque. <laughs> But yeah, Starboy came out, and it's probably going to be the last highly anticipated album of the year because now we're in December territory and nobody really releases album this late in the year. And I kind of feel like the timing of it says something about the content of the album, which is to say it's not one of the better albums of the year. Listen, your review is better than this album. Can I say that? I'm yeah, just... for sure. <laughs> Weekend. You know what? I have this weird sort of relationship with Weekend. I think I stand for him on this podcast um, a few weeks ago because I have. love Starboy and I loved his collaborations with Daft Punk. And I thought that the album was going to have more of that. Mm -hmm. And then when it didn't, I was like, uh, what are you doing? I don't know. The album's boring. It's too long. So the album is 18 tracks long, which it. I'm not trying to say that you can't have an album that can't be 18 tracks long. A Seat at the Table, for example, was really long. But a lot of those tracks were actually interludes, you know, so they were done in like 50 seconds. But the weekend songs, all except for, to me, the best track on the album, Stargirl Interlude featuring Lana Del Rey, they're all like standard length. And it just creates, there's a moment in the middle where you get tired and you kind of just like turn it off and you're not really compelled to put it back on, which sucks because there are some songs on the second half that are great. Like I think the Daft Punk song at the end is really good. I like the song that he did with Future. It has a lot of gems, but it's just like overpacked. Yeah. Like, we really didn't need Kendrick on the album. No. Because Kendrick's guest verses are always lackluster anyway. I feel like somebody could write a whole think piece about the Kendrick guest verse. It feels super commercial, very capitalistic. It has none of the artistry that his actual like albums have. I feel like his only good guest verse has been Oh, on I Freedom. didn't even Well, I'm I'm not saying anything about that. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, <laughs> I'm not going to my parlor set the spider to the fly. <laughs> Nonetheless, we'll talk about that later. We'll talk about that podcast. later. Starboy, not amazing, has some bangers on it. If you do coke, again, this is a great album to do cocaine to. Well, I mean, <laughs> I'm not going to say what I do on this podcast, but I have many occasions where I can listen to The Weeknd and feel, you know, just as lush and baroque and extravagant <laughs> and excessive 
as he does in his songs. But some of them are just like, also his lyrics. I don't need to hear the lyrics, got a sweet Asian chick, she go low main. It's so... Like, are you Kanye? Uh, <laughs> right? <laughs> lyric it's, is so bad. Uh, yeah, at the end of the day, I think that The weekend is better... Well, I loved, obviously, his trilogy music, all the House of Balloons, like super moody R&B music. But when he's doing pop, I like it because it hems in some of his lyricism that is so wild. You know, like he has a line on this album where he talks about how he feels like David Carradine when he comes. David Carradine, I don't know if you guys remember him, but he died of autoerotic asphyxiation. Like (laughs) I do. Seven years ago. So it's just like, yeah. he. I think he does too much with some of his <laughs> lyrics. It's a little extra. There's a term that's really troubled and has been for the past couple of weeks, and it's called the alt-right. Basically, the alt-right refers to a group of white nationalists, a.k.a. white supremacists, a.k.a. racist-ass white people, who have come of age, basically, on the internet. And their group has some shades of populism to it, some shades of, like, internet trolling. And they kind of distinguish themselves from what we have always known to be white supremacists in America, right? So they're not necessarily like the KKK, but maybe like their granddaddies were in the KKK. And a lot of people feel like it's not correct to refer to them by their chosen name, which is the alt-right. A lot of people want us to call them Nazis and white supremacists and all these things. And Ira and I have some thoughts about it that we're going to work out right now. Uh, Yeah, you know what? I have a lot of thoughts about the alt-white. And... (laughs) um, I think that we should call them by what they're calling themselves. Because otherwise, how will you know what you're talking about? You know, it's just like, it's more, I think it's more this silly nonsense of like pretending something doesn't exist mm-hmm. and thinking it'll go away. Mm-hmm. The way some people try to be with Donald Trump's tweeting. And I get it. Like, I don't want to think about anything that uncooked lasagna is doing. But when he tweets about stuff like people who burn flags should, you know, go to prison or have their citizenship revoked, it's shit you need to talk about. You can't just ignore it. And you can't ignore the alt-white and, you know, what they're doing. They are on the internet. They are sneaking into the White House with Steve <laughs> I mean, they're being Bannon. invited in. They're not sneaking in. They're, they, there's like a red yeah, carpet being rolled out for them. <laughs> a white they carpet. Are, listen, <laughs> make way for um, Prince KKK. <laughs> That's going to be a Disney movie like by next year. <laughs> Prince KKK uh. and his Snow White Queen. <laughs> I here's the thing about names, right? Because what we're talking about is terms. People who are against using the term alt-right argue that it's normalizing. And normalizing basically means that 
because we don't have a certain familiarity with this term in the way that we do Nazis, when people hear it, they might not think that it's dangerous. And I understand that logic, but I don't think it stands when we think about the landscape, right, and what it's going to be like for the next four years and on. If these people are calling themselves alt-right, in a sentence, you can, you know, the AP had a really good guide that said, you can call them alt-right in in quotation marks, right, because that's their name, and then you can further expand to say they're white nationalists or Nazis or whatever you're trying to say. But this idea that we have to call everything that's white supremacist in America Nazism belies the specificities of what's going on in this country right now, right? This is not Germany 1930. Obviously, it bears a lot of, there are a lot of things that people see that are uncanny and are similar because of the way white supremacy works, but these are not the same people, right? Like these (laughs) these aren't Nazis from the 30s and 40s that have just like risen from the dead as zombies to do this to America. It's a totally new group of people And just because they come from a tradition doesn't mean we can't look at the ways that they're different, right? Like, so the internet is one of the major ways the alt-right isn't similar to Nazis. There's crossover. Some people call themselves Nazis. Some people call themselves neo-Nazis. But I think especially while the Trump administration threatens journalism and threatens truth, we have to be as aggressive as possible in propelling the truth and like using the the white the white words the right words <laughs> and so to me it's not normalizing it's not normalizing it's what they call themselves you call them that and then you describe and then you move on it's nothing to be like you know so emotional over like so many people are right now it just feels like because we're losing so badly people are picking up this really small basically insignificant argument to feel like they're winning something. But in the grand scheme of things, it's not. uh, To me, it doesn't really have that much um, importance. I really hate the term normalizing in the first place anyway, you know? Because it's like, you're just like sucking the teat of (laughs) white supremacy. Like, just call it what it is. You know, you're going down on white supremacy. Um, Oh my god, that's so graphic (laughs) i'm just i'm just saying you know like people keep using that word the way that they also keep talking about this alt-right um needs to be called nazis nonsense here is a thing i want to bring up why are we calling the alt-right white supremacists when people of color have been terrorized by white supremacists in america since it was created And we don't call those people white supremacists, you know? It's just like I feel like because these people are exhibiting, you know, traits of neo-Nazism is why it's suddenly more dangerous to people. But, you know, the Tea Party was spouting all sorts of racist shit for years. Mm -hmm. um, And nobody was asking us to call them a different name, you still write Tea Party down, Mm -hmm. you know? And there's always this thing about trying to connect, you know, Trump to Hitler. And I'm like, we've had Hitler-esque people, you know, in the White House 
White House before, you know? Presidents have owned slaves. You know, we've had the Confederacy in America, too, which, you know, wanted to imprison, enslave, and also wipe out black people. You know, I think that white people are having a hard time grappling with the fact that there's, like, semi-attractive white people who are racist now. You know, I'm well, not I calling it- that... I'm not calling that Holden Caulfield looking Spencer bitch who is like running the alt right attractive. I'm just saying, you know, he doesn't look like what people assume as like the old like grandpa in Kansas who's racist, you know? Like everyone seemed to think racists were dying out, you know? But there's a lot of young racists in America. Yeah, he doesn't look like what white people would assume racists look like, right? So a lot of this conversation right now is centralizing white surprise or white, you know, being people being aghast at a movement that they really think just started. Like, they really do think it started, like, with the Tea Party, you know? And some people actually mm-hmm. think it just started with Trump. Like, it just, you know, bloomed out of the earth from nothing. And I would also say that the difference with a group like the alt-right is that their idea of whiteness actually excludes a lot of, quote-unquote, white people from that fraternity. You know? They're anti-Semitic. Yeah. You know? The Jewish people and any other understanding in America are white people. To the alt-right, they're not. A lot of people who never even thought of themselves as being marginalized now see themselves through the filters of these guys and are like, you know, they're really jolted in a way they weren't when, I don't know, white racists were talking about black people or gay people or Muslim people. Now they feel really materially threatened and physically threatened. And so... I think that's a reckoning that needs to be just, like, said plainly. Like, at the end of the day, you white people were asleep, and now you're waking up, and it's terrifying you. But that doesn't mean that you can just, like, erase a very obvious history that's in America. And don't forget that we, at the end of the day, are writers. You can make the alt-right scary without having to replace the word with neo-Nazi. Just explain who the alt-right is and why we should be terrified of them. Mm-hmm. Submit your tale for the approval of the Midnight Society and get on with the ghost story. And now for our feedback segment where we got a couple of exciting voicemails. One of them is more of a comment. And the other one is an out-of-control question. Hi, Doreen. Hi, Ira. Uh, This is Emma in Oregon. And I don't have a question. I just wanted to call in and leave you a message letting you know that I love both of you. I love both of your writing. I love the podcast so much. I've been sharing it like crazy. I just got done listening to this week's episode, and it lifted me up a little bit, Um, especially your response to the question regarding sort of a hard time of year and uh, 
Anyway, thank you for everything, and keep doing it just like you're doing it. Much love. Oh, that was so thank sweet. Thank you, Emma. It feels really good when people just, you know, let you know that you're doing something that's helpful because sometimes it may not feel that way, especially in this moment where I think everyone is having an existential crisis. So I'm happy we were able to help you. Yes, I am happy that you are finding some sort of truth in my nonsense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that we can be two black people in your life because you said you live in Oregon and... I'm not going to make any assumptions, but I do know that the population there is a little pale. So listen, I played the I played the Oregon Trail in Oregon, not Oregon. One, you know what? You had something to say about a Beyonce track earlier, so we'll talk about Oregon, Oregon <laughs> off podcast as well. I was saying I used to play the Oregon Trail as a kid and there weren't any black people in that video game. So, you know, there are no black people in Oregon. <laughs> you messed up my fucking joke. <laughs> Next voicemail. Hi guys, I'm very new to the podcast, so I'm not sure if this question has been answered before, but I was thinking about Solange's Don't Touch My Hair and just thinking about my experiences with people of other races asking to touch my hair, and I thought that I've never had a bad experience. I'm usually receptive to letting people touch my hair. However, when I was living in the Midwest for a year, I'm a New Yorker from New York, New Jersey. Um, so I've lived on the East Coast the majority of my life. So living on the Midwest was a culture shock for me. But long story short, I had a woman, white woman. She was extremely intoxicated. I was at a restaurant, and everyone noticed how intoxicated she was because she was talking so loud. And she comes up to me and says, "Can I?" she was like, can I touch your hair? I want to see what it feels like. So she touches my hair. And screamed, oh, my gosh, it's so soft like cotton. And I was so shocked. <laughs> and every, I, I promise you, almost every woman of color, black, mostly black and um, Hispanic, looked at her like they wanted to kill her. And her husband apologized to me and took her out of the restaurant. I want to know, in your opinion, what should I have done in that situation? Because looking back on it, I feel like I should have said something. I can't turn around time, but what would you have done in that situation? And what advice would you give to someone in that situation? And by the way, my name is B. <laughs> you could just call me B for short. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. So I'm just stuck on how this woman touched Dee's hair and said it was like cotton. Can we just sit with that for a minute? The fact that right. you were able to not react, I personally can't relate to it. I'm going to try and advise you, but all I know is that if somebody said that my hair felt like cotton, that person would no longer have any hair on their head. Right. You know, no one's about to be picking my hair and taking it to Michael Fassbender back at the plantation. <laughs> I really do not know how 
were you with your man? I don't know how he allowed that. That's another point, yeah. You should honestly be in prison right now for catching a case. <laughs> <laughs> she should she should be dead. <laughs> I will say that there is a virtue in not just popping off. Because you never know what situation, what environment you're in, and somebody just does something like wild and appropriate like that. And it's not healthy for you to feel like you always have to, you know, react in maybe an angry, emotional way and then also maybe a physical way. So I will say that, like, people are disrespectful and it's something that we encounter all the time. And there has to be a sustainable way to react to situations like that, right? And for me, I think it would just be calling her out. And in a way that's not even aggressive, not a world star way, but a way that's just like, why are you touching me? Like, I didn't give you consent to touch me. Like, why do you think that you can just do that to me? And to ask her questions, because then it forces her to respond to you as opposed to just yelling, you know, because then she can't really say anything. She's also drunk, though. So it's like, I guess the only response would have been to say that to her husband and mm-hmm. hope that he told her when she's sober. So it is sort of a hard situation. And if you're dealing with this drunk white woman, <laughs> I can understand being so shook. But still, what you should have actually done is gone to the restaurant manager and talked about how you were assaulted in their restaurant and gotten oh. yourself a free meal. That's the level up. If you're going to be harassed by a white person, you might as well get a free meal out of it. You got to learn. You got to get your scam (laughs) on, girl. That's really great advice. Thank you. Because I feel like in Trump's America, white people are going to be starting to get reckless. We've already seen how many viral videos there have been of white people just like screaming and customer service people, Trump, 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 just mm-hmm. because they have to pay a dollar for a bag or someone won't write Trump on their Starbucks card or whatever the fuck it is that they want. So I feel like we, as people of color, need to learn to get every advantage from a situation that we can. If someone's racist to you, if someone harasses you, makes you feel uncomfortable, what can you get out of the situation? What would Ira do? <laughs> I should sell those shirts. We should. You don't seem enthusiastic about it. What do you mean? I'll be <laughs> hawking them. I will I will get a tattoo. All right. I invite all of our listeners, if you really want to be led by the sage advice of a one RMS and the third. Maybe you just need to tattoo his name on your body. Now you're just being rude. Bye. (laughs) Each week we invite listeners to call in and leave us a voicemail so Doreen and I can offer you advice on love, life, or blocking the president on Twitter. (laughs) Our number is 424-354-9335.
Once again, our number is 424-354-9335. And leave a message. All right, Doreen, you and I have to go because we have a little Beyonce thing to talk about off cast. <laughs> I love the idea of an off cast speed dial after hours, as if we're not already ridiculous on the official conversation. We would really get fired if they heard speed dial after hours. <laughs> oh my God. Like with the swiftness, we'd be escorted out of our respective buildings. But anyway, I can't wait to talk with you next week. I missed you last week. You're my therapy. Aw, thank you. I pay an actual therapist, but you're good to talk to as well. (laughs) Bye. Bye. This episode of Speed Dial was produced by Michael Catano, James T. Green, Mukta Mohan, and Kasha Mahalowicz for the MTV Podcast Network with additional engineering by Little Everywhere. You can subscribe to this and all of our other shows on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you can find your favorite podcasts.